0: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
1: When you mess with the institution of marriage, you really mess with a whole lot more than you think because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Christ is pictured as the husband, the bridegroom. And we know that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, would never, ever, ever abandon his bride. He went and came to earth and died to... Redeem, to save, and to rescue the people of God. I can see
0: the promised land, though there's pain within the plan, there is victory in the end. Your love is my battle. with Pastor Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so blessed that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the program, and we're so glad to have you back. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles or on your devices if you can. On today's edition of Grace to Live, we're continuing with Pastor Keith's series, Ten Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, from the Old Testament book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
1: If you are joining us today, we are in the middle of a series called 10 Rules for Life and Antidote for Chaos, and what we're doing is taking a look at the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments are mostly often, mostly, often, often, mostly misunderstood in that people see them as a list of rules of do's and don'ts or whatever and they really don't think much about them. The Ten Commandments remind us that we are not good enough in our own strength and our own abilities to be pleasing to God and if God didn't choose to love us we couldn't choose to love him. And uh, the Ten Commandments shows us our need for God because when you think about it if you've ever cheated on your taxes or if you've ever uh, fudged on an expense report or if you've ever uh, copied a quiz in school or whatever it is or taking credit for something that you didn't do you're a thief and a liar right but it just reminds us of how bad we are and how good God is how holy God is and it reminds us of our needs for grace but the ten commandments also reminds us that God has given us a better way We don't have to live like the culture. We have to live in the culture, but we can live apart from the culture and live lives that reflect the goodness and grace and glory of God as we strive, however imperfectly, to uh, live according to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are really an antidote for chaos because when you look around the world, when you look at every, particularly Western countries, their legal systems, just like our own legal system, is founded and grounded on the Ten Commandments. It's, it's sort of a quick start guide for life in that if you get the Ten Commandments right, you understand how you're supposed to relate to God because the first four commandments talk about that and how you're supposed to relate to other people because the next six talk about that. How you relate to your parents, how you relate to society, things like that. And so we've been working through these, uh, we call them Ten Rules for Life or Ten Protections. And they are an antidote for chaos because if you attempt and endeavor to conform your thinking and your will to God's Word here, there's a whole lot less pain and struggle in your life. So here we are. And we talked about uh, the first four already, and we'll sort of remember where we've come from. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, it talks about making God a priority. And and, And we think about that. If God is our priority, we tend to be selfless and not selfish. We tend to think it before we act. We tend to not shoot from the hip and shoot our big toe off. We tend to live lives the way we should. When when it says in the second commandment, you shall not make yourself an idol, you shall not bow down to one and worship them, it reminds us that there is no substitute for God. That our careers, that our passions, that our hobbies cannot substitute for God in our life. Uh, The French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said that there is a void in every human being in the shape of God, and only he can fill it. And we want to accept no substitutes. I talked about my little uh, mishap years ago where I pumped 150 gallons of diesel into the gas tank of a gasoline engine vehicle. You can't substitute things for the other. And when you substitute stuff for God, you don't run right, just like that gasoline engine that day. Then we talked about being careful what you say and careful what you do. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We do that lots of ways. We swear, we use curses, we swear oaths that we should never swear, but we also claim to be or we misrepresent God, and we don't want to take his name lightly. We don't want to misuse his name. We talked about the need to make time for God. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In this world where we're being pulled in so many different directions, if we don't stop and be still and remember who God is and how God is and how important he is and all he's done for us, we, we can't function right. We've got diesel in our gas tank again. Then we, you know, we came to the other commandments about honoring your father and mother. You know, if you don't respect your parents, you'll be unable to respect authority. So you want to respect your parents because God has given them to you to raise you, to care for you, to protect you, to guide you, to direct your lives when you're a little bambino or a little bambina and you don't have the ability to think for yourself. And how you relate to your parents is going to determine how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to to the people around you, how you relate to people in the workplace, all authority in your life. So respect your parents, respect authority. And then we talked about respecting life. We live in an age of honor killings and revenge killings and character assassination and things like that. When it says you shall not murder, it means you're to respect life. And we talked about that, how our society has gone awry because it really doesn't respect life anymore. Somebody gets old and infirm, and in some countries they put him to sleep like we do our pets here in the United States. We slaughter children before they're born. We do all kinds of crazy things. And we understood that respecting life and not murdering has nothing to do with self-defense. It has nothing to do with fighting in a war. It has to do with not vengefully taking somebody's life for no good reason. As a vigilante or as a one-person social justice uh, crusader or something like that. Well, today we move into the seventh commandment, and that is respect your spouse and you know sometimes i know that some of you may think at least theoretically that's hard to do but it's not a suggestion it's a command because if you don't respect your spouse if you don't honor your spouse you will not respect marriage and marriage really this this commandment really says in the in visible ink respect marriage because marriage is the foundational institution of a civilized society so goes the marriage so goes the children so goes the children so goes the church, so goes the church and the family, so goes society. It's like a domino effect. And this, this uh, rule for life, this antidote for chaos, really is sort of a hinge or a linchpin for the society, for the church, for the world. Because when your spouse can't trust you, nobody can. And when you're untrustworthy, it's a bad place to be. And so we begin today with this seventh command. Respect your spouse, respect marriage. And it's just critical. It cannot be, it's important, cannot be underestimated. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille, some of us know who that is, some of us don't. Some of us don't care who he was. But what he said was this, and I thought it was really interesting, and I've shared this with you before. He says, we cannot break the Ten Commandments, we can only break our lives against them. And that's true. You know, the Ten Commandments will function as a standard of conduct and righteousness, so to speak. And you can ignore the Ten Commandments, but you do so at your own peril. Because in essence, you're thumbing your nose at God and society and and choices like that have dire, dire consequences. And when you mess with the institution of marriage, you really mess with a whole lot more than you think because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The church is the bride or the spouse of Jesus Christ. Christ is pictured as the husband, the bridegroom. And we know that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, would never, ever, ever abandon his bride. He went and came to earth and died to redeem, to save, and to rescue the people of God. And so we know that he won't abandon the church. And when you abandon your your spouse, you say, you blaspheme God. You say things about God that are insulting and untrue by your example. And and it's sort of like... uh, you know, we talk about the Gulf War and the war in Afghanistan, these IEDs, the improvised explosive devices, or hand grenades. They blow a hole in the ground, but they radiate shrapnel out and lacerate everybody within, some, within the blast radius. They certainly kill the people who trip them, but they damage and they uh, maim a whole lot more. And so it is with divorce. And, and so I just want, to under, want you to understand that this respect for marriage, this respect for your spouse is an antidote for chaos because when you don't do that the chaos that follows follows for decades and decades and it affects children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and neighbors and friends and enemies and so we just want to understand the importance of the command exodus 2014 or deuteronomy 5:18: you shall not commit adultery it's a prohibition it's a protection It's important. It's like you shall not stick your finger in a light socket because chaos will follow. We talked about that last week. And so I just want you to understand this. And so what I want to do today, I think you get it, right? You know, last week I kind of broke apart and walked you through piece by piece, you shall not murder, what it meant, what it didn't mean, and everything else. I'm going to give you some credit today. And I'm not going to unpack like I did last week, you shall not commit adultery, what I want to do is do a case study in adultery with you today. You know this is a prohibition from God. You, that's me and you, or in the uh, holy language, y'all. Shall not, that's a bad thing you cannot do, commit, practice, engage in adultery. You got that, right? So let's look at what happens. Let's look at a cautionary tale. Let's look at a case study of adultery. And it's going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And this case, and, and the subject is King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who loved God, who was used by God, and nevertheless wrought havoc in the lives of his family and his nation. And we want to look at this. And what you're going to see here is what happens when somebody chooses to do what they know is wrong. When somebody chooses to think the wrong way and to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and to engage in the wrong activity, even though they know better. So what I'm going to do, the the slides for the passage, since it's so long, are not going to be up there. So if you turn your Bibles to uh, uh, 2 Samuel 11, we'll have some other uh, verse slides up as we go, but such a long narrative, I'm just going to sort of walk you through this. And what I want you to see is this. You know, we live in an age where people say, well, it's a sickness, it's a disease. You know, sin has become the illness model. No, it's a choice. It's a choice. And so Let's just start in 2nd uh, Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. Think about that. He sent everybody out to war and he stayed home. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Well, there he is. He's, not, he's where he shouldn't be, right? A king goes with his people. A leader leads. This, he doesn't lead from behind, as somebody once said. He leads from out in front. He sets the example. And then we go on and look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon, in parentheses, when David was in a wrong place at the wrong time where he shouldn't have been. It's invisible ink. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, taking a little nap there while everybody's out fighting for their lives and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman's bathing, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. There's a whole lot of shaking going on here, okay? First of all, you know, as we said, he's where he shouldn't be. He's not where his troops are. He's He's not doing what he should be doing. And he goes up on the roof and he sees, he looks around, there's a woman bathing. Now, embarrassing glances and I mean, we all, you know, you walk on the corner, and you catch somebody doing something you wish you hadn't seen them doing. Small things, little things, you look away and, ooh, that was, that was embarrassing. And those things can happen to good people. Even, you know, I mean, you could, you know, go to the beach and see something you shouldn't see or whatever, but, but David doesn't do that. First of all, we noticed that he noticed that she was very beautiful. That means he didn't look at her and go, oh, she's bathing, I shouldn't look. He didn't do that. He saw her and it registered what she was doing and instead of him going, ah, oh, you know, he doesn't do that. Watch it play out. And David, verse 3, sent and inquired about the woman. So we already know what's going on in his head. Why is he inquiring about her? Who cares who this naked woman is? None of his business. But you know what? He's being tempted and carried away by his own desires, like it talks about in James 1, 13 through 16. And one said, so he sent a servant to find out who this person is. Who is this person bathing naked over there? Imagine what the servant thought. Why does the king want to know that for You see how our, our crimes like this, our thought crimes, our sin crimes, whatever you want to call it, always impact other people. So he sends a servant, an employee, and they come back and say, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, what you don't see going on there is a warning. The servant comes back and goes, you know who this is? This is the daughter of one of your bodyguards. This is the wife of one of your key soldiers. And in parentheses and invisible ink, are you crazy? The other thing that it doesn't show up here, but it shows up in 1 Kings and other places, is this is the granddaughter of his most trusted personal counselor, Ahithophel. And so what this, this servant is wisely telling him is, you are putting a lot of relationships and people and yourself at risk, O king. But David ignores the good sense of this subtle question. Is, it, is this not this person? Related to this person, related to that person? Are you sure? You know, He just blows it off. He's already committed, as Jesus says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, I think 527, he's already committed adultery in his own heart. Now he's just going to follow up. He's going to follow through. He's role-playing in his mind how this is going to work, tempted and carried away by his own desires. And when lust gives birth to sin, sin bring, comes forth and brings death, right? That's what James says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So, verse 4, so David sent messengers... He's committing himself to a course of action. David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And lay with her is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Now, you think about this. David was a man schooled in the Word of God. And in the Torah, it says, you shall not commit adultery. And throughout the law of God, it says that over and over again. And David, is a man after God's own heart, as a man of the book, would know what he's doing is wrong. Nevertheless, he did it anyway. He did not make God his priority, and his desire to sleep with that woman became a substitute, an idol for the glory of God. And you know, his parents taught him better, right? So he failed to honor his father and mother. You know, these ten commandments, these ten rules for life, these antidotes for chaos, these ten protections are interwoven together like a finely, like a fine linen garment. When you tear one of them, you tear the whole garment. Here, furthermore, the law prescribed. Uh, a sanction for adultery. It says here in uh, Leviticus 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. There's a, uh, an intensive there that means make sure they die. But that's not what happened. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now you have this parenthetical statement, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using, we're using the ESV today, it says now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Why is that there? It's there because of this. When she becomes pregnant, there's no way David can say, well, maybe it was Uriah's child, not mine. There's no, you know, doing this kind of paternity thing that people do today because she had come through her cycle and she had been purifying herself, so she had not been with her husband. So there's no doubt in the reader's mind, and there will be no doubt if this ever came to light, that this was his illegitimate son or child. And, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, it's my body, it's my life, and who does it really hurt? Nobody knows. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. That's a myth. It says, then she returned to her house. So every, everything's okay, he thinks. And then verse 5, the hammer begins to drop here. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, in those days, they didn't slaughter infants like we do today. And so he's got to figure something out. He's beginning to realize that the walls are closing in on him, and he's going to have to do something. And rather than doing the right thing and throwing himself on the mercy of the court and on the mercy of God, he begins to cover up. He begins to cover up. So what does it say in verse 6? So David sent word to Joab... Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send her husband to me. And then what's going to play out here, excuse me, then what's going to play out here is a a series of, of attempts of David to lure Uriah back from the battlefield, away from his troops, away from his unit, and to, under the pretense of asking him how the war is going, and he's going to try to induce, hey, go home and spend some time with the wife so that he can create the appearance that it's Uriah's child. And because Uriah is a good soldier and a good leader, he says, why should I go back and live in my house when my men are sleeping in the open field? Why should I go back to my house and my comfort when there's a war going on? Why should I go back to my house and my comfort when the ark of God is in the battlefield? And David tries everything. David tries to get him drunk. He tries everything to blur his conscience, to blur Uriah's thinking. But Uriah, the Hittite, a Hittite, not even a Jew, A convert to the Jewish faith is is a man of integrity, and he is faithful to his God, to his country, and his king, and he will not go. So, what do you do? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he puts this letter in the hand of this loyal soldier, this man among men. And what does he say? This is a man of integrity. Take good care of him. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to think of the chaos, the bent and crooked thinking that good people go through when they start really racking up their lives spiritually. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Oh, there's a way to reward integrity. There's a way to reward loyalty. Kill him. Murder him. And you know what happens? When it says, you shall not murder, it means you shall not murder. When it says, I the Lord, am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery, and he begins to tell you how to conduct yourselves for his glory and your good, do it. And, but what's going to go on here? Is this David? David now is like his own God. He's going to play God. His reputation, which he threw away, is become an idol that he's going to protect. He's going to substitute his reputation and his comfort for God's glory. And he's not only committed adultery now, he's going to commit murder, and he does so successfully. We read in verse 16, And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, men who are going to go up and fight. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage them. So what's going on here? You know, you, you, uh, Joab sent a note back saying, I, he's dead. We put him up front. The bravest men, they, uh, they assaulted the line and he perished. And then David and, and Joab are pretending, oh, like, this is terrible, but hey, these things happen. This is war. Now what's he done now? He's involved Joab his most loyal general, in his conspiracy. He's contaminated him. He's got Uriah's blood on his own hands and on the hands of Joab. You see how this thing branches out here and just corrupts? Can you imagine what Joab thought when he got that letter? Why are we going to bump this guy off? Well, he's the king. I guess I should do that. Is that right thinking for a military leader? No. No, it isn't. And so what's happening here is David is corrupting everybody around him. They're being drawn into this. That's why I say adultery is like an IED or it's like a grenade. It blows up and kills the participants. Bathsheba and David will never be the same. And their lives will be forever changed. But now it's cost Uriah the Hittite his life. David has involved his servants who probably used to look up to him in this conspiracy. They know what's going on. They may not know about the letter, but now Joab's been pulled into it, and he's sowing the seeds of destruction in the fabric of his reign, in the fabric of his progeny, the lives of his children and grandchildren, and in the fabric of his nation, all because he was where he shouldn't have been, he thought the way he shouldn't have thought, and he allowed himself the liberty of doing what he knew was wrong.